But we're going to be in James chapter 4 today. If you want to open up your Bibles there, James 4, 1 through 10 is where we'll be. For those of you visiting us this morning, uh, Pastor Steve is just starting his summer sabbatical, so he'll be out of the pulpit for a few weeks. Um, and in the meantime, uh, Ted Paul and Ron Karras and myself will be uh, filling the pulpit. Uh, Steve will pick up uh, his, his walk through Acts again uh, when he returns um, after the sabbatical. I'm not sure exactly the date on that. But I'm going to read our passage in James, James 4, 1 through 10, if you want to follow along. It says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whomever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's of no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, we continue in your presence this morning uh, as we have sung, as we have partaken of the Lord's Supper, and now we turn to your word, and we ask that you would use your word well, Father. You recorded this passage of scripture on purpose. And I ask that as we walk through it this morning, uh, that we would become a people of peace more than we are now, more than we ever have been, that this local body would be known uh, for peace. Not because we are so wonderful, but because you are Prince of Peace and we are your people. So use your word well, help us to be able to focus, help us to, uh, to see what we need to in our lives, encourage us, God, give me uh, your words, not mine, that it would be your message that is proclaimed and not mine. In your name I pray. Amen. When I was a little guy, uh, I was still eating in a high chair, so I don't know, maybe 12 or 15, um, <laughs> or maybe like three or four, somewhere in that age range, um, I had pretty strong opinions about things. I still do have strong opinions about things, but this story is about when I was three or four, and the a uh, strong thing that I had an opinion about had to do with food. I was in a high chair. And to be honest, by that age, I think I had kind of figured out how to manage my life properly. Uh, but mom and dad didn't fully agree with that. And so sometimes there were differences in perspective or opinion on that. Um, and this time, it was food, it was dinner time, and I liked dinner. I, I partook of, of all that was dinner. I still enjoy dinner and partaking of all that is dinner. Uh, except green beans. I did not want to eat green beans on this particular evening, and they were part of dinner. Um, from my understanding of the world, that was not the best course of action to take, uh, but mom and dad disagreed. Toddler Jeff had a, a plan and a path, and I was going to stick to it, uh, and mom and dad were sticking to theirs, and so I ended up taking a very long and uncomfortable nap strapped into that high chair because I would not eat my green beans. And I was not getting out until those green beans were gone. Finally, I, I, I gave in and ate the green beans because I wanted to go play. Um, and it's ironic that uh, I could barely manage the technology that is the plastic toddler fork at that age. You know, you're eating with your hands because you can't do it. But I already had the resources to really entrench myself in that high chair and fight mom and dad. That was not a learned skill. That was just, I had that. I did not, I needed to learn to, eat, to use a fork. I did not need to learn to fight mom and dad. That came really natural to me. Conflict is endemic to who we are as fallen humans. It is in all of us. 
Listen to these three quotes. All mankind is in a perpetual and restless desire for power that stops only in death. It's pretty harsh, kind of extreme statement. All mankind is in a perpetual and restless desire for power that stops only in death. All war is a highly planned and cooperative form of theft. And then lastly, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. The first quote was from Thomas Hobbes, the father of Western political philosophy. The second was Jacob Bernowski, a modern scientist and a student of history and politics. And the third, you probably recognize, is from James. And when you start studying the topic of conflict, you realize that regardless of worldview, regardless of where you think people came from or why they're here or where they're going, you know conflict is part of life. Conflict is part of the human experience, and it plays a very powerful role in our lives, big and large. We all have conflict in one form or another, and, and in this passage, James gives us a solution to conflict. In fact, he gives us a solution to all conflict. He does something that might feel uh, very surprising if you look at the, the variety of conflict that we experience. And he provides a one-size-fits-all solution for conflict. He can do that because ultimately, as we're going to see as we walk through the passage, uh, there's one common source to all conflict. All conflict is related in where it comes from and therefore has the same solution. And that's what we're going to see as we walk through this passage. And James' solution is very simple and very, very hard. The solution is humility before God. In this passage, James asks us, do you have conflict? Got conflict? And we can most likely say, yeah, actually we do. And his response to us is, get humble. If you have conflict, you need to get humble. That's what this passage tells us. I'm not standing here with this passage, by the way, because we are an overly conflictive congregation. <laughs> I want to let you know that. Um, I am standing here with this passage because we are all fallen humans living in a fallen world, and therefore we experience conflict. All of us. And my goal this morning is that we would walk away from this passage understanding kind of the source, the true nature of conflict, and, and committed to respond how God outlines for us in this passage. This passage will give us a path to peace. When we have conflict, this passage will give us a path to peace. And my hope and my prayer is that we would understand conflict, we would understand that path, and that out of it, we would be a congregation that is peaceful. That when people talk about Kishwaukee Bible Church, they would say, that's a really peaceful group of people. Not because we're so great, but because our Lord is the Prince of Peace. And we want to reflect Him. But let's see how James uh, makes his claim and reaches his solution in the passage. So we can start at the first point, the start of conflict, in verse 1. And he says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James says, What's the source of the conflict that you have? And then he answers his own question. He says, isn't it what's inside you, the passions inside you? He makes a, his point with a rhetorical question. He says, the conflict that you have with each other out there, relational conflict, stems from something inside you. Our default, I would say, as humans is to blame someone else when we have conflict. It's someone else's fault. It's a situation, a circumstance, uh, anything but us. We, when there is conflict, we default to looking outside for conflict, for the source of it. And uh, here, in one verse, James stops that search, holds up a mirror, and says, there's the problem. I am the problem. When I have conflict in my life, I am the problem. That's what James says. Now, there's two basic kinds of conflict. Conflict is inherently relational. We don't have conflict with whatever, the stapler, when it doesn't work. We get frustrated with the stapler, but the stapler is an inanimate object. That's not conflict. That's just frustration. 
Conflict is relational. It requires relationship. So we have conflict with other humans. We have conflict with each other. That's the external conflict that James starts talking about. And we have a second kind of relationship, and that's a spiritual one with God. We have a relationship with God. And there can be conflict in our relationship with God. Even as the redeemed people of Christ living in this land called grace that Jesus brought us into by his crushed body and his shed blood, even when we are here, we can still experience conflict with God. So we have conflict with people, which is where James starts the passage, and we have conflict with God, which is what he's going to move to. In both of those, whatever kind of conflict we're experiencing with each other or with God, James says the cause is in us. This passage um, is of no use to blame shifters. I will just say that outright. If you live with a lot of conflict in your life and you are able to always find someone else that is to blame for that conflict, if you listen to this passage that way, it will be of no use to, no use to you. This passage is mighty for those that recognize I am the cause of the conflict. If you insist on blame shifting, you will not benefit from this passage. But, I'll also say, for those of you that, um, by the grace of God, are walking humbly with him and experiencing the gift of peace, this passage is helpful because you're probably around people that aren't experiencing peace at the moment, and it'll give you a path to help them in. And if you arrive broken because of conflict that you're in and frustrated and hurting and not sure what to do, this passage will give you a path to peace. But the first step, regardless of where you're at, the first step is realizing the key, the source of the conflict is in us. Before I go on, I want to say this, though. I know that in this room, there are some of you that are genuinely innocent victims, that other people have wronged you in the past or are presently doing that. And for some of you, you see no end to that wrong. You see no way out of it. And you are, you are on the receiving end of that conflict. And I want to make something very clear. This passage does not blame you for what is happening to you. Okay, that's not what this passage says. This passage does not blame you for what is happening to you when you were on the receiving end of wrong being done to you. At the same time, when you are on the receiving end of wrong that others have done to you, um, I think James would say that you run a very special risk of having conflict with God. Because very simply put, if God is sovereign, and he is, he could have avoided the wrong that is being done to you but he didn't. And that often leads to conflict with God, saying, why, God, this is not how it's supposed to be. And so if you are on the receiving end of wrong, uh, this, you might walk through this passage a bit different. Because the conflict that you're experiencing with those around you is not something you're doing, it's what's being done to you. But be very aware of your heart in the process, because it's very easy to turn against God. And so this passage will speak to you through that. James starts out addressing relational conflict, the conflict that we have with each other. And so take a, take a moment and look at your life and assess where the conflict is. Where's the conflict in your life? Please don't answer out loud. That would just be kind of disruptive to everybody around you. But take a moment, look at your life. Where is the conflict? Are you feeling it relationally with others? Are you on the receiving end? Is it possible you're on the giving end when you don't realize it? Or are you in the middle of a conflict with God? Are you, are you struggling with God through something, through a desire that's not being met, a relationship that's not what you want it to be, even though there's not external conflict? Dreams, expectations, hopes, plans that didn't pan out, those often lead to struggles with God. 
And regardless of where you see or feel that conflict in your life, this passage lays out a path to peace. But that path to peace is only available to you if you realize that the conflict that you see is starting in you. So I'm drilling that home because there's no point moving forward unless you realize the conflict you're going through starts with you. That's the first point. As we move on in the passage, James shows us more thoroughly that the conflict starts within us and spreads out. So we move to the second point, and look at how he starts in verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. He says, unmet desire leads to murder. But most of us can legitimately say, I've, I've never murdered anyone. So that would seem to paint... James in a a bit of a tight spot. We've all desired something that we haven't murdered for, which is fine and right, which is fine and all, right up until Jesus disagrees with us. Listen to his words in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said of, of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Anger and insults carry the same judgment and punishment as actual murder. Anger and insults carry the same judgment as murder. James says that unmet desires turns us against people. And in the process, when we... When we willingly and knowingly turn against people, we are setting ourselves up to be judged as murderers. That's what happens. Unmet desires turns us against people, and we end up being judged just the same as if we'd actually murdered them. He keeps making his case as he continues in verse 2. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. We want stuff, we can't get it, so we fight. There's two realities that underpin what James is saying here. We're needy and we're limited. By needy, I mean there's things that we need that by definition we don't have. We don't presently have everything we will need for the rest of our lives. We are needy in that regard. We lack something. And we're limited in that we don't have all the resources necessary to always get everything that we need or everything that we want. We want stuff and we can't get it. And that, James says, puts us at odds with others, so we fight to get what we want. In my introduction, I quoted Jacob Brunowski, who said that that all war is ultimately a form of theft. And that was his conclusion as he looked back at the earliest recorded wars um, that ironically center on the town of Jericho. And uh, that was his conclusion. Nothing has changed. Remove the complexities of modern warfare, the technologies involved, And you're left with that basic reality. People want and they don't have, so they fight to get it. Whether it's with words or with guns, that's what happens. The witness of history is that people want and don't have, so they fight. James isn't making anything up. He's just speaking truth that we see played out in history. We want something, we can't get it, we fight for it. Still in verse 2, James points out the irony of our lack. It's optional. We don't have to be in a position of wanting something and not having it. He says, you do not have because you don't do not ask. It's a really simple point. We don't have something because we're not asking for it. Job 38, 41 says, Who prepares for the raven its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? Throughout the Bible, God is pictured as provider. Job was probably the earliest book written, and God was known as provider. God is provider. That's what the Bible makes so abundantly clear. Even lowly birds, he makes sure they get worms. Like all the birds, God feeds them. If he can handle feeding all the birds of the world simultaneously, at the same time that he's caring for the worms that are going to become their food, all of them, he can handle our needs. 
we have a relationship with the provider of the world. When we don't have something, it's kind of our own fault. We have direct access to God. So why are we left with wants? As the children of God Almighty that provides for all of his creation so perfectly, why are we left with wants? Verse 3 says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. James says, you have access to the creator of the world to get everything that you need. But you, when you approach him, it's for your wants. It's for your selfish wants. So, no, he doesn't answer. We ask God for what we want, not with his purposes in mind, with our desires in mind. So, he doesn't provide that want. He'll provide our needs. But he holds back those wants because we're pursuing them selfishly. So let's review. James has unloaded quite the volley on us so far. If, if you're tracking, you're kind of feeling exposed and possibly a little bit low at this point. He says we exist in conflict because of what's in, in our hearts. We are to blame for the conflict that we experience. And in the process of being in conflict with others, we end up judged as murderers. But we don't have to be in that position because we are in relationship with the one who can fill all of our needs and our proper wants. So there's actually no reason for us to be in conflict with anyone. But we are. So now what? What's the solution? James starts moving us to the, the, towards a solution in our third point. But first... He brings clarity to the real problem. The nation of Israel uh, has a, a pretty checkered past when it comes to her relationship with God. Um, and despite God's provision and faithfulness, Israel often turned from God to idols, to other gods, to just kind of taking a bit of this and a bit of that and making something new. It was not a pretty history. And the prophet Hosea had the very unenviable task of marrying a prostitute as a living example of God's faithfulness in the face of Israel's unfaithfulness. And the message to Israel was unmistakable. Israel, you've cheated on me. That's what God wanted to make sure that his people knew. Israel, you've cheated on me. And it turns out that that's also James' message to you and I. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes, his, makes himself an enemy of God. We've cheated on God, he says. When we, when we cozy up to the world, we turn against God. In order to give affection to the world, in order to desire things in the world, those desires and that affection has to come from someplace. And we're, we're literally stealing that from God to place it on the world. And in the process, we're committing adultery on God. We're cheating on God. We cannot pursue the world. We cannot cozy up to the world without stealing affection from God. And that's adultery. If we want to understand the nature of, uh, of our conflict problem, we, we really have to understand our actions. When we are interacting with the world and, and starting to enjoy it, it's not just that we, we kind of click with it, we can enjoy, enjoy God and the world, and, and it's going to be okay. The two don't go together. Whatever affection is placed on the world, we have removed from God. And God's not okay with that. When we love God rightly, when our affections are locked onto God, we can interact with this world. We can interact with this world the way that he did without placing affections on the world. But we can only do that if our affections are locked onto God. Otherwise, we end up cheating on God. Simply by desiring things in this world, we're removing affections that are due to God. 
when we love God rightly, there's, there's no room left for any affection, for anything disconnected from him. When we love God rightly, everything that we love is, we love it because it's connected to him. And we love it in light of him. And we love it in relationship to him. This, this accusation from James of committing spiritual, adul- spiritual adultery and being enemies of God's is, is thankfully the conclusion of the problem that he's explaining to us. I don't think I could take much more bad news. Uh, we've kind of hit rock bottom at this point. At the beginning of the chapter, he starts identifying and explaining that the conflict that we, rela- we experience in relationship with others starts within us. <coughs> Ultimately, the source of that conflict is that we desire things that we don't have and that we differ with God over what and who and what we think we should have. That conflict happens because we are differing from God, and so we don't turn to God, and God doesn't supply because we're at odds with him in that. And ultimately, when we want a life other than the life that God has given us, it puts us in conflict with those around us, and ultimately in conflict with God. That's the conclusion. When we want a life other than the life that God has given us, that puts us in conflict with others and in conflict with God. And that conflict is spiritual adultery and enmity with God. We become his enemies. The conflict we experience with those around us is merely the outward expression of our internal conflict with God. That's what James is getting at. The conflict we experience with others is merely the outward expression of the internal conflict with God. That's why James says in verse 1, if you've got conflict, the problem's in you. He holds up the mirror because any conflict that we experience in the world is the outflow of our internal conflict with God. James has made his case. The solution has to be getting right with God, right? If ultimately what's behind all the conflict that we experience in the world, if what's behind that is conflict in my relationship with God, then I have to solve the conflict in my relationship with God in order to be right with those around me. I cannot skip my relationship with God and hope to make things right in the world. It's impossible. You have to deal with the root of the issue. A valid question at this point is, well, where, with, where is our conflict with God left him? If the issue is that we internally have conflict with God, even as his, even as his children, we have conflict with God. If we have committed spiritual adultery in God, if we've cheated on him, where does that leave him in relationship to us? What sort of a hole do we have to dig ourselves out of? Look at verse 5. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Do you see the, the quote in that verse? He yearns jealously over the spirit that was made to dwell in us. That's not actually a direct quote from the Bible. Uh, It alludes to a couple passages in the Old Testament, but it's more of a a paraphrase of those passages than a direct quote. But regardless of paraphrase or quote, the point is this. God is like a jealous husband over us because we have his spirit. God deposited his spirit within us. It's proof that he's going to finish what he started, and he's not going to walk away from us because we have his spirit. But jealous is one of those words that benefits from clarification. The point of this quote is not that God is mean-tempered and insecure and afraid of losing us. He's not controlling. It's not that kind of a jealous. What, What it means in this quote is that God is a husband that loves his bride so much that he isn't just going to watch her leave and do nothing about it means that he loves his bride so much that he is going to do everything within his power to restore the relationship. That's what jealous means. 
God is a loving husband who is going to bring the entirety of his resources to bear on restoring the broken relationship. That's a good kind of jealous. That is hopeful. But what does that look like in daily life? Like, what do we do with that? Look at verse 6. It starts out, it says, But he gives more grace. Pause there for a second. James says that, that God dispenses grace. That that is how he goes after his people to restore them. What's, what's it mean, he gives more grace? It, it means that God enables freely and generously. It means that as the loving husband coming after his bride with the entirety of his resources, it means that God is going to freely and generously and with overflow work within us to bring us back to himself. That the entirety of his resources are available to us. Because there's no anger, there's no frustration. That's why I'm so glad we got to partake of Lord's Supper first. The crushed body of Christ is our certainty that this is going to happen. We're, we're not earning God's favor and then hoping to go from there. The favor has been earned by Jesus. He, he made us citizens of this land called grace where God loves to pour out his goodness upon us. And that grace is now available to us. Not, not in a limited form. Not he gives some grace or he gives most of the grace. God gives more grace. However much, if you think you're going to need 150 units of grace to resolve the conflict that you're experiencing with God so you can have peace in this world, God's going to give you 1,500 units of grace. That's what this means. There's no lack. And so we can't, like the first several verses of this passage, if you really catch them, they're very crushing. And James makes sure that we don't stay crushed, but that he lifts us up with the grace of God. He gives more grace. Look back at verse 6. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God's generous grace, his, his complete enablement is reserved for the humble. If you, if you recognize the conflict in your relationship with God and you see it spilling out into your relationship around you and you say, I, I don't want to cheat on you, God, anymore. I want, I want things to be right. Humility is the first step. There is no access to God's path to peace apart from humility. Why, why is humility that first step? Why is that the key response on our end? It's because if you look back at the conflict described in verses 1 through 3, we see that that conflict stems from us trying to, to displace God, to decide what we need, when we need it, how we want it to happen. In all of that, we're rejecting God's sovereign choices. We're rejecting his lordship over us. We're arm wrestling God for the throne. That's what it is. We're arm wrestling God for the throne. And so the first step away from that has to be humility, to say, God, you are God, and I am not. Jesus, you are on the throne, and I am not. We cannot move towards peace apart from humility. When we acknowledge that, when we begin with that humility, we have full access to God's abundant and generous help in the restoration process. And that moves us to our last point, the end of the conflict, because James very helpfully lays out a path for us to follow. So when I say God's full enablement is available, the full grace of God is going to come to bear, and you say, cool, but on what? This is what it comes to bear on. When we start with humility and we follow God, he laid out a path for us, which is awesome. 
And those of you that I referenced earlier, I said some of you here are on the receiving end of conflict. You are genuinely innocent victims in the process. The beauty of this path for peace is that even as wrong is being done to you, you can have absolute peace with God, which is the most powerful way to get through what you're going through. And this is the path for you that are being wronged, and this is the path for those of us that realize we have broken relationships and we have conflict because we're in conflict with God. If you realize that, this is the path for you as well. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. For those of you in the congregation that love practical points, this is very practical. Some of you love big theory and and big words, and some of you want to know what to do. And this section is going to tell you what to do. So if that's you, this is for you. Here's the the parts as we move through the restoration process. First, you have to break ties with the devil. Submit yourselves to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You might say, but, but I never chose the devil. I don't, I don't want anything to do with him. I know he's the bad guy. I'm, I've never wanted to be in relationship with the devil or have anything to do with the devil. But here's the reality. Rebellion against God puts us in cahoots with the devil. The devil invented rebellion against God. It didn't exist before him. And so every time that we rebel against God... We are moving into Satan's camp in that regard. He started rebellion, and we are moving into rebellion with him. Satan loves rebellion against God. But the good news is that he hates relationship with God. He absolutely hates it. And so as your relationship with God regains its vitality, when the conflict ceases to be the dominant nature of your relationship with God, in a close and intimate relationship is, replaces it, Satan will have less and less to do with you. Now, that's not to say that you will experience spiritual attacks. You will experience spiritual warfare. Uh, but your relationship with Satan changes as your relationship with God grows. That's what's being explained here. And on the one hand, like that, there, there's a lot of layers to that statement, by the way, because when Jesus saved us, and he, he placed us in this land called grace, we're forever safe from Satan's grips. This passage, this whole James passage, is not about how we are saved, and it's not about the eternal reality of our salvation. It's about the present experience of our salvation. And so James isn't saying, listen, you're close to losing your salvation because you're in cahoots with the devil. He's not saying that. He's talking about right now, We can experience conflict with God and with others, or we can experience peace with God and peace with others. And if we want to experience peace with God, then we have to distance ourselves from the original rebel. We have to. And rebellion puts us in his camp. Humility moves us out of it. Next, we have to rebuild our relationship with God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's no magic pill that we can pop and rebuild our relationship with God. There's not like a microwave solution to this. This is a handmade meal with lots of effort. Any relationship takes time, it takes effort, and our relationship with God is the same thing. In order to rebuild our relationship with God in order to draw near to him and experience his nearness to us. We have to spend time reading the Bible. Spend time not just reading and and working your way through it, but meditating on it. Thinking about it. What does it mean? What does it 
What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about myself? Meditate on scripture. We have to spend time in prayer. We cannot just walk through life as if we were independent creatures from God. We are dependent. We need him. We have to be in communication with him. And do not overlook this one. We have to spend time with others that are pursuing God. We absolutely have to. If, if you look at your life and you see that your walk with God is not all that you would like it to be, if you see weak spots, if you see seasons of failure, you will most likely also find that those are seasons of disconnection from other believers. And you can show up at church on Sunday, and you can even go to a weekly Bible study and be very disconnected from believers. If, we want, if you want to rebuild your relationship with God, and if you want to maintain a vital relationship with God, you have to be in relationship with other believers where your walk with God is part of your conversation. You cannot just get together with other believers and talk about a sports team and think that you fellowship. You have to get together and talk about your walk with God and your heart. If you want to grow with God, if you want your relationship with God to be restored, you have to do that. As we draw closer to God, as this process happens, as we, as we do what verse 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, both intentionally and as a result of growing closer to God, holiness grows in our lives. We become more holy. And those things that are appealing to God become appealing to us and we pursue them. And those things that are gross to God become gross to us and we reject them. And that happens as we grow closer to God. If you pursue holiness aside from a relationship with God, you're going to run out of steam. You'll, you'll hit, you, can, you can pursue holiness of your own accord up to a certain point and then no more. But if it's your relationship with God that is fueling that growth in holiness, there is no stopping point. Because the closer you get to God, the more you see the world the way that he does, and you love what he loves, and you hate what he hates. That happens as you grow closer to God. You cannot separate those two and have a successful growth in holiness or walk with God. Lastly, we have to mourn our adultery. Verse 9, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We cannot truly re-encounter God and have a growing relationship with God again and look back at our, our rebellion lightly. It won't happen. As we grow closer to God, we come to love what he loves and hate what we hate, and we see our rebellion for what it is, and we hate it. And tears are a wonderful part of the process. Whether that's you home alone with your Bible and the tears, or whether that's as we partake of communion and sing of who God is, as we grow closer to God, it is inevitable that we'll see our, our rebellion in, in fresh light and, and be disgusted by it. And we mourn. And I, don't, I actually don't think we can genuinely move towards God without moments of mourning. The journey towards God is a joyful one. But along the way, we see what we've done and and it's gross, and we hate it. And we remember the cross that we proclaim today, and we love it, and we rejoice. So it's moments of mourning, but they should be there. But what, where does this path end? What's the outcome for us when we are reconciled to God? Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. That's the, the first point of this journey that we just walked through. Humble yourself before the Lord, and the end result is that he will exalt you. When we arrive humble before God, no longer fighting uh, to get what we want, when we want it, how we want it. When we arrive in open-handed humility before God, he provides, he gives, he leads. He gives us that generous grace, that generous provision that God supplies for the journey back to him. That same grace that brought us back to him is now at work continually bringing good to us as his children. Continually bringing good. 
somehow the result of that is that we are exalted. That doesn't mean that we get rich and powerful and comfortable here. In fact, that exaltation might play itself out while hunger and need and illness remain. That exaltation might come through death. But in our right relationship with God, we are co-heirs with Christ. We receive forever all the spiritual blessings of what it means to be a child of God. We will be exalted, ultimately. And we get to walk through the brokenness of this world with a right relationship with God. That's what this passage is about. Not the state of our salvation before God, but the experiencing of the goodness of that salvation here and now. James is very practical that way. This path, by the way, is probably not a one-time journey. You will probably have to walk it many times through your life, and you might find yourself walking the same journey over the same relationships and situations, kind of like an onion. You, you, you peel a layer off and you cry, and, and as you grow with God, you realize there's more layers to that onion, and you peel more layers off, and there's more tears, and there's more mourning when you, when you realize the depth of your rebellion and, and the grace of God which brought you to where you're at, and you get to keep on going forward. Don't fear the mourning or the tears. It's part of God's process. Let's wrap it up. Followers of Jesus, in this passage, in this context, don't for an instant forget that you have been given peace with God the Father. This passage is not about how you obtain uh, eternal peace with God. That's been done for you. This passage is about how we experience it and live it out right here and right now. Some of you are here with, with known conflict in your life. When I said, think of where the conflict is in your life, it did not take you long to think of what that conflict was. And, and your choice and your path is clear. To be honest, this passage leaves no gray. You can either... Submit to God in faith, humble yourself, and labor down that road to peace with the grace that God will so freely give you. <coughs> or you can choose to not submit and to remain in conflict and to remain in cahoots with Satan. It's a very clear option. Some of you are here and you are legitimately victims of wrongs that others have done to you. There's conflict, but you're on the receiving end of it. Legitimately on the receiving end of it. And for you, the greater danger is conflict with God over the situation that you're in, over the shattered dreams. You, you, you look at what your life is and what it could have been, and you look to sovereign God, and, and, and that, that puts you in a position to often move to struggle with God. But in the midst of the wrong that is being done to you, this path to peace will give you peace with God that will fuel you and keep you going through the wrong that you are receiving, and you will ultimately be exalted. That's the beauty of this, is that our, our ability to be exalted does not hinge on, on what we're doing in that regard or what others are doing to us. Somebody else cannot stop God's plan to exalt you and bring good to you. God's grace is at work, and he's going to do it, and this path will help you experience that, even in the midst of the brokenness that, that is being done to you. Some of you are, are here enjoying a season of both external and internal peace, and you look at life around you, and you, you, you have peace, and you look at your relationship with God, and, and you have peace, and praise God. Uh, but I will say that generally God does not grant those seasons of peace as a spiritual vacation. If you're experiencing that peace, if that's where you're at, there's probably somebody around you that desperately needs help. Because as the body of Christ, God gives us collectively together by his spirit what we need to walk with him. And so where there is need in the body of Christ, there is provision in the body of Christ. And you might be that provision for this season of life.
And then lastly, there are some of you here with lots of conflict in your lives and relationships. And it seems that almost everywhere you turn, there is conflict with somebody and that they should be here to hear this sermon. Well, to be blunt, God chose to have you here to hear this sermon. And so this message isn't about them, it's for you. And if you are a person that others don't like being around and that has a lot of conflict, James wants you to hold up a mirror to see the cause and the source of that conflict. Finally, um, as followers of Jesus, we are ambassadors for the Prince of Peace. Think about that. It's our job to go out and further the cause, the reign, the rule of the Prince of Peace. Where we go, the peace of Christ should come with us. The reign of King Jesus should enter the room with us. When we walk into a room as ambassadors of King Jesus, people should sigh in relief that we have arrived rather than cringe and, and, and despair and hope that we leave soon. And from looking at the Gospels, I would say that's generally true of those that agree with Jesus and those that don't. The Pharisees hated him, but the prostitutes didn't, even when he didn't agree with them. That's what it means to be the Prince of Peace. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are before you as those whom you have fully reconciled. We are before you grateful and uh, many of us broken. And so I ask, Jesus, that you would apply your work as Prince of Peace to our hearts and our minds and our lives. I ask that where we are experiencing conflict, would you show us the break in our relationship with you? Would you bring us to humility so that we can walk the path back to peace? Would you restore the relationship in a way that it never was even, that we would grow closer to you and become more like you, that one day you would exalt us, not because of what we have done, but because we are recipients of your grace through the atoning work of King Jesus. So we thank you, God. We love you, and we ask that you would make us a peaceful people for your glory and honor. In the name of King Jesus, we pray. Amen.